Hi, I'm Teresa, and I'm an addict. Oh, I'm so glad it's a small meeting. <laughs> so far, yeah. Um, wait, let me get my bearings on the time. Five. Okay. All right. So the topic is um, practicing forgiveness in all our affairs. And, um, and I was asked to do this about a, a month or two ago. And I didn't get nervous until about 3 o'clock this morning, which is 7 my time in my body, which is kind of around the time I usually wake up between 7 and 8. So, you know, so I'm fine. <laughs> but um, anyway, I'm, I am from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And it's interesting that this is a topic that I was given because I have a... Um, a forgiveness story to tell, and uh, and it's lasted my whole recovery up until um, a, f- a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago by now. So, and it's about my my um, parents and through my recovery. So, I um I just celebrated um, 27 years two weeks ago. <laughs> And no, I wasn't four when I got clean. <laughs> People ask me that. I was, um, in, in two weeks from now, I'll be 46 years old. So, I was 18 when I got clean. So this forgiveness story spans my whole recovery. And so here it goes. So when I was, when I was growing up, I grew up in, um, in L.A., in, um, in the, what I consider a very violent home. And there were, um, I have nine brothers and sisters and two parents. I have always, you know, my parents are still together. Uh, you know, family is intact that way. And, uh, and, and I grew up, um, I'm the seventh of ten, and I grew up in a, in a violent home. I was, you know, somebody was always getting beat up you know, at home, or being yelled at, and I, I remember I even got spit at in the face by my dad, and I remember, I told my husband this story, I don't, I don't remember how old I was, but it wasn't more than 10 years old, and I remember my dad bringing me into my, into his room, and, and he sat down, so we're like eye level, I'm standing, so I know I was young, and he's like, can you, he's asking me, he's really pissed, I don't know what happened, and he's like, can you justify your existence, can you tell me where you're going to be in five years, you know, just, just weird stuff for a little kid to deal with, and, um, and I also grew up in a home where there was incest, and, and where the next door neighbor, the kids that we played with, their dad was molesting me, and so this sort of thing went on until I was about, um, probably 14, years old for a long time I don't know when it started but it was a long time and so so anyway there's a picture of my dad there and he, I, he didn't molest me or anything with my brothers but and then my, my mom and my mom is um, what I always considered very um, cold emotionally and, and um, you know just not really there like every time we were getting beat up I would hear her, my dad's name is Alfred, you know, so I'd hear her say, Alfred, stop, you're hurting them, you know, or something, and that was about the extent of it. She never did any more than that. And so I was, you know, looking back, I was destined to be standing here, you know, in, in recovery, right, eventually. Or just, and I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to be an addict when I grew up, because I, 
my older brothers were doing drugs, and I just assumed that if you're doing drugs, you're an addict. And and I wanted to be like them because they were willing to do whatever they wanted to do and take the consequences. You know, if that meant getting beat up or whatever, then that's what they would do. And for me, I I was I went more underground with my, when I was up to, so they couldn't didn't necessarily know what I was doing. And from a very early age, I tried to escape. You know, I, I read books, I ate sugar, I, you know, just stuff like that. And um, so anyway, that was, so I end up, at, towards the end of my um, using, I was um, suicidal. You know, just, you know, would get really angry that, um, that I would even wake up the next day. You know, I just wanted to be done. And at 18, I thought I knew everything already. I had done everything I already needed to do. And I was um, just done, you know, like, okay, I'm mature now, let me go, you know. And, um, and then I ended up in treatment and um, in North Dakota, all places. And, um, and then I, after treatment, I moved to um, Fargo, North Dakota. And this is because where I came from, I didn't, want to, I didn't tell anybody I was going because I just didn't, my friends were not helpful in having me quit, you know. So I just went on to the next town. And um, and I thought that when I got clean, I would be fine and everything. And oh, while I was in treatment, I actually worked some steps. And I did a fourth step. And I wrote about, it was all about my dad and how, and I just completely blamed him for my whole life. And just really, you know, he really had a lot of power over me. I allowed him to have a lot of power over my thinking and and some of the things that I did, like there was a point where in recovery I was in a relationship and we were living together and I didn't want my parents to know. So every night I would put the phone by my side of the bed just in case they called. They never called, but, you know, just wanted to make sure. And um, so anyway, I, it was all about him. And when I used, it was about him a lot of times. And so I, anyway, I ended up um, getting into recovery and... Um, so this is 1978, Fargo, North Dakota. There's one NA meeting a week. And, and I'm extremely shy, painfully shy. And I somehow made it to meetings. And in my recovery at that time, I remember, well, before I got there, I, I uh, was suicidal again. And I thought that if, you, if you're clean and not doing drugs, everything should be better, right? You know, like now, all of a sudden, I'm not shy anymore and not suicidal and all that. And that just didn't happen. So I got into recovery, and throughout the years, I have I have worked on on uh, I've struggled with my parents. I have had the hardest time. Um, I just didn't believe they loved me because I never heard it. I never got hugs from them, you know, all that kind of stuff. My my other brothers and sisters, we never. Um, we don't talk very much because it's, when we do get together, it's all about them. It's all about my parents and how they were when we were growing up. And there was a lot of damage done. And to the point where, like, I have a brother that just won't even have kids. He just thinks he's going to be like my dad. So he just didn't have kids. I have another brother that um, he died a year ago. And he was he's a couple years younger than me. And every time he would call me, he was... He had to be drunk to call me, and, and, I, and that's the way it was when you would call my parents, too. And, and that's how I was when I was using. And he ended up ODing a year ago on alcohol and Xanax, and, and 
one of his major things was he never, ever got over how we grew up. He was just like, like he was too sensitive to this world, you know. He just, um, he just couldn't do it. And um, so it's just been a huge deal in my life, this issue with my parents. And so there was a time in my recovery where I, I went for 11 years without speaking to them or talking to them. And because I remember watching TV one day and I heard a comedian talking about his parents and he said, he said how he was over visiting his parents and how um, he, he was thinking to himself, like realizing, you know, these people, I don't really like them. Like, the only reason I'm visiting them is because they're my parents. You know, and I just, I'm like, wow. Like, it was a revelation. Like, you mean I can just drop that whole thing and just leave them alone? <laughs> so I did, and I went to the extreme, and it was 11 years, you know. So, um, anyway, so then there was a point where um, my husband and I, we moved to uh, Albuquerque from L.A. after the earthquake in 94. And then we were going to go visit his folks in Minnesota and take a driving trip. And my daughter, who was young at the time, um, asked me if we were going to see my parents because she knew it was on the way. And I said, I don't think so. She's, she's like, why not? They're my grandparents. And if I had kids and they'd never seen you, I'd want, you know, and she was going on. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> we'll go see them. And so here's 11 years, no contact whatsoever, except my mom sends, a, you know, cards at the appropriate times, but nothing back from us, never. And so she, um, so on the way there, we're like in Wyoming, and I call my mom from the cell phone, and, and I, so I call her to tell her we're coming, and I'm nervous, man, and she goes, she picks up the phone and she goes, hello, and I go, hi, mom, this is Teresa, and she goes, well, it's been a long time, <laughs> and that was it, you know, and I told her, well, we're going to, um, we're on our way through, and so we're going to, we'd like to stop and see you guys, and she goes, all right, um, well, as long as it's like this day and not this day, because we have an appointment that we can't miss, you know, it's just like going on, like, as if we see each other all the time. So I said, all right. So then we go there, and we stay a few hours. And when I, when I stay in there, I remembered that it's like um, there's like a two- or three-hour limit for me with them, and then I can't do it anymore. Because I start looking at my dad, and his eyes get all crazy, and he's like this really into books and research and stuff. My parents are really educated, and so he, he has a whole library, and they live in this three-bedroom apartment, and he's got books everywhere, and you start talking about something, and he runs and grabs a book to prove his point, you know, and so it gets to the point where to me that was just too tedious, and I can't do it anymore, you know, and so about two, three hours later, it was just time to go, you know, and I get out of there, and I, can't, I get to where I can't even breathe anymore, you know, so I leave there, and um and I go, and we're on our way and stuff. And then when we get back to Albuquerque, uh, two weeks later, my one of my brothers calls and says, he lets me know that that appointment that they had was that my dad had colon cancer, and he was going in the hospital to have his colon removed. You know, I was like, so that's how close we are. Like, he didn't even let me know that. So, um, like, 
I don't know, a few years go by and nothing's really going on between my parents and I. Um, and then there's a point where there's some email going on. And then I, you know, I, like Mother's Day and Father's Day, I send those e-cards through the email. So, because, you know, I go and I look at cards and they're sappy and they don't match how I feel for my parents. And I don't know what to do. But it's like I need to do something, you know, kind of. And so, I'm, you know, I'm working. I'm working steps and... You know, and just to give you an idea about my recovery, it's I'm very um, vigilant about it because I, you know I want I've learned that recovery offers me as much freedom as I can handle and that I want, and I want freedom in in my mind and my body and my spirit. You know, so I do things like I haven't eaten sugar in seven years, I haven't had meat in seventeen years. I, that's the spiritual thing more than a body thing. I, um, I don't smoke and I don't do caffeine. And these are all the things, like, people go, how can you do all that? You're so good, you know. And it's not about being good. It's about being free. It's, I feel better when I'm not doing those things. I, you know, like, I remember someone saying one time, you know, you, go, you do something and you want to celebrate and you think you're treating yourself by having a huge piece of cake. And then you think about how you feel when you're done. It's like, oh, that was not a treat. <laughs> that does not feel good. You know, so I like preventive recovery, you know. And um, so anyway, so I've been working on my recovery, and, and this issue keeps coming up about my parents. And um, so I, a, couple, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, I was doing a four-step, and and we have this a guide. I have a guide that I use, and one of the first thing you do is you write about all your relationships. And I and I've used this guide several times. So I was I started in writing about my um, my mom. I always pick her first. So I start writing about our relationship, and and it was going to be in my mind the same stuff. I don't even know why I was doing it because it was going to be like all my life she's been unemotionally or emotionally unavailable and you know and all that kind of stuff so I start writing about her and um, all of a sudden it's about it's about what an incredible woman she is and I don't know where that came from but I I started like something that opened up in me and I start writing about her and how she raised 10 kids before she got married she had a master's degree she had started college when she was 16 and you know she grew up in the 30s and 40s or whatever, you know, she's like, she's 76 now, so I don't know. I know that my parents grew up in, during the Depression in New York, you know. And so anyway, I, like, I remember her lining up 10 lunch bags on the counter and filling them for lunch every night for the next day and all this stuff, always at the laundry, at the washer and dryer, always doing laundry, all this stuff, and I knew she wanted to do something else. I mean, she's like a career person and kind of ahead of her time that way. And so I realized what an incredible woman that she was, and I, um, so that was a, quite an insight to me, but I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it. And so I think I, what I did was I just started maybe a little more email contact, and it was always to her, but I know that my dad would read whatever I wrote, you know, to her. And so I just kind of went about my business and I, and I started, uh, you know, fairly recently feeling like, you know, my parents are getting old and I really need to handle this. You know, they're, they're going to die and, I, you know, and I need to get in some kind of um, place, 
with this. And my dad is 83, my mom's 76. And when I started looking at, well, I started planning a trip, and I was calling it a pilgrimage. And this trip took place um, a month ago. It was like the beginning of August. And I haven't seen them in six or seven years. I don't remember. And the last time I saw them, I was with a woman that was a sponsor of mine at the time. And we were coming through, and I called my parents and said we were coming through. My mom had lunch ready for us, and we go there, and the three, the two three-hour limit happened, and it was time to go. You know, my, my dad's eyes were getting crazy. You know. It was like, you know, that's the formula for it. So, so that started happening, and it was time to go. So I get into the car with my sponsor, and I look at her, and I go, so what do you think of that, Mariana? What do you think? How do you think that went, you know? She goes, they love you a lot. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I couldn't believe what she said. And, I, and she tells the truth, you know, and it just blew me away. And um, so anyway, I'm, I'm thinking this trip that I'm going to make is a, is a pilgrimage. I'm just going to handle it. I'm just going to see how it goes. And I started before that emailing them, and, and I wanted to hear about their childhoods. Um, because I never knew how it was, and I just assumed that it wasn't very good or I would have known about it. And um, they started telling me, and also my husband and I are going to New York in June, and that's where my parents are from, and they love New York, and so they had all kinds of things to tell us about that. And my dad told me that, like, I didn't know. I didn't know he was born in a cold water flat in, the, in that place, like, not in the hospital, right there. And he grew up, they grew up during the Depression, um, my dad's Italian, and they, they grew up, um, he grew up pushing his Italianness aside, trying not to be that. And, and I didn't know that, and that's why I grew up, I'm Italian, but I don't feel like I am, you know, because there's just not a lot of culture in our household. But anyway, so we, I started finding out more things about them, and I just I read something today, um, in the spiritual magazine I get, and it was about understanding and forgiveness, and it was about the more that I can understand the person that I am to forgive, the easier it is to let go of the negative stuff. And and I knew that before I read that today, because I start understanding where they came from, um, how they grew up. They grew up in a time where they didn't have a lot of money, a lot of food. My dad um, told me, I didn't know this, but he told me that he got beat up regularly and his mother got beat up, you know, um, stuff like that. And um, and this is the concept, they did the best they could. I've worked with all these 27 years, I've tried, you know. And I would get to the point where I would, I really wanted to believe that because it would really help, and I couldn't. And I finally got there this year with that. Like, they absolutely did the very best that they could with what they have, with what they grew up with. With um, They didn't have stuff like what we have today. They couldn't go to counseling or probably even admit that there was any kind of an issue or problem to deal with, you know. And so, and then I thought about how my dad, um, you know, he comes from a family with one brother, and my mom is an only child, and now they have ten kids. You know, my mom had her 10th kid by the time she was 36 years old. And her uterus gave out, you know, so she was done. And um, so, you know, it was just, I just started understanding more and more. So 
I called, I, no, I didn't call them. I was still too chicken. I emailed and said I'm coming through there and that I'd like to see them. So um, we had, like, this appointed time, and I drove. This was a driving trip. I drove, like, 4,000 miles by myself this summer. And, and it was an awesome trip. And so I ended up, I went and I saw them. And, and so I'm getting ready for the, I'm going to have lunch with them at noon at their house. And I'm getting ready for, geared up for, okay, there's the two or three hour limit, you know, where then I need to go. Where my dad's eyes do this and, you know, it's just, and I can't explain that, but I'm, some of you guys probably know what you're, you got a person in your life who you know it's time to go. And so anyway, I went, I got there, I get up to the, um, it's three floors, I get up there and I knock and they answer and they're happy to see me, we hug. We have lunch. We're talking. My dad is older than I ever remember him being. His last time I saw him, he had black hair. Now it's all gray. He's shaky. He walks with a cane. He just wants to die. He's done. My mom is—I've never seen her look this old before. And um, and I start talking to them about our ancestry, and, and I find out some things that are pretty cool, you know. And they're telling me about things and growing up and stuff like that. And Three hours go by, you know, a couple more, and I've been there five hours. And it's and that time never came. And it was like, um, I look and it's, I was there from 12 till 5, and then it's like, I had to get going at some point, you know. So I told them, it was like the natural time to leave, you know. And so I said, and... When they saw me last time, I had one tattoo, and now I have, like, five. And when I went there six or seven years ago, I made sure I wore a shirt where you couldn't see it. It was on my belly. Oh, I had one on my back, too. So, oh, anyway, I had more. I made sure they couldn't see him. So this time it was like, you know what, I'm going, I'm just going to be who I am. And if they don't like it, whatever, you know. And it's not like screw them or anything, but... I'm just going to be who I am. And so I went there and just wearing the normal stuff that I wear. And I always wear my shirts a little short, you know, and stuff. And they didn't say anything about it at all. There's no, I didn't feel any judgment coming from them or anything. And so when I left, they gave me a hug. And and I walked out of there and it was like, got in my car and they're at the balcony waving at me and stuff, you know. And, um... And I knew I was loved. And, you know, they, for the first time in my life, they explained some of the stuff. Like, they talked about, my mom actually acknowledged that we were beat up when we were growing up. And she said, that's what my dad said, you know, when I was a kid, I got beat up, my mom got beat up. He said, when we were bringing you guys up, that's just how it was. You know, and I got that. And it was like, it's like, um, that doesn't take away my trauma, you know, that I've had to deal with, but it, I understand. And then when they told me that my, my sister, when she was 18, we shared a room and we went to high school together and people were asking me, is your sister pregnant? And I'm like, I don't know, you know. And it turns out she was, you know, I mean, that's how close we were, you know. Turns out she was pregnant, and my parents sent her away. And this is in the 70s. They sent her away to have the baby and have it adopted, right? And they were telling me, that's just what you did back then. We didn't know any better, and I completely believed them. 
you know. And so, uh, you know, we talk a lot around here about perceptions and stuff. And, and I can see where my perception as being a kid, the way that I grew up, is off, you know. And being a parent helps me to understand my parents more. And, um, and it's, I just never, ever, and there's people in my life that know my struggle with my parents, and I never, ever dreamed that I would get to this point with them. And it doesn't mean, like, now I'm going to go be visiting them and calling them up and all that kind of stuff. I just am settled with the whole thing, and which I never had before. I never even dreamt of that happening, you know. And, um, and I'm just, I'm really grateful. I'm grateful that the, this program offers a, a way of freedom from a lot of stuff, you know. And, well, freedom from active addiction, and then there's the byproducts of that, you know. And, um, and it's just... And the way that I grew up also and, and recovery has allowed me to raise my kids the way that I've raised them. I didn't know how, you know, because like my brother, I wasn't willing to not have kids, but I didn't know how to have them. And, you know, and so what I did was the opposite of what my parents did. And it worked. <laughs> it's worked out pretty good. But um, anyway, it's. So it's been a long journey, and there's times where I've been in my recovery where I'm like, you know, I have this much clean time. I should be done with this by now, you know, and stuff like that. I don't think that way anymore. I have 27 years, and I just got through the, well, the parent thing. But like, I like to say I, I reserve a spot for that to come up again, you know, because, <laughs> you know, things are never completely done. But um, anyway, I'm just, I'm really grateful for being asked to share um, Cause, and it's amazing that this is a topic, because this is a huge deal for me, a huge letting go. And I, I know that there's other people that struggle with this issue. And, um, and for the most part, forgiveness in my daily life, um, I, I think I do it the way that I just read this morning. It's about understanding and compassion, you know. And that doesn't mean I jump right to that. But um, I want freedom. And forgiveness is for me. It's for me to feel the happy, joyous, and free that we talk about. It's not, I mean, it probably helps the other person, but there's a lot of people that might not even know I have anything going on with them, you know, so free, the forgiveness is for me to um, be free. So thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Teresa. Now I would like to introduce our second speaker, Jim G. from North Carolina. Good morning. I'm an addict called Jim. Will you all join me in another moment of silence, please? first that I'm very grateful to have been offered this opportunity. I'm also very humbled by it. Um, it's amazing to me the longer I stay clean, the more I realize how much humility plays a part in daily recovery. 
and how far out of the way I have to be of my own self to get a sense of that humility. Yeah, I think most of the time I'm pretty full of myself. I know none of y'all can identify with that. I've learned through experience that what I call prayer is continues to be an essential part of my recovery in my daily life. It is especially useful in opportunities like this to help get me out of the way. And I don't mean get me out of the way to where like I'm just like a robot or anything. I mean get me out of the way so that whatever's in my spirit I can pass along. There will probably be moments of silence in, in my sharing of my experience because my fear tells me that I don't really have a whole lot to share. And what happens when I really listen to that is somewhere in there, I jump in and I start filling the empty silence with words. And um, I don't want to do that. Because this isn't about, even though it's about my experience, it's, it's really about being a part of the whole and, and recovery and everything that I've learned in my, in my recovery. It's bigger than me. So I want as little of me in there as, as I can manage. So rather than reacting on my fear by just saying a bunch of stuff that sounds good, I'm just going to quietly listen. But I did make notes. Because... <clears throat> I really believe that, you know, when we share our experience, whether we're sitting in a circle in our, you know, home group or sharing at a world convention or wherever we share, that for that moment in time, we are the message. And that's just a personal belief of mine. And there's something very important about that because somewhere someone's listening and is looking for hope. And... Um, I don't want to miss the opportunity to give that to them. I remember early in my recovery, it seemed to me that, you know, when, you would, when I would go to a convention and I would listen to the speakers, it seemed that the, the louder and the more vulgar they were, the more that they were applauded. And, and that never really sat right with me. And, and um, because my thought was, you're the message tonight from 8 to 9.30 or whatever. You know, and people are looking for hope. And so... And I tried that. I mean, I tried, you know, shouting and, you know, and all that kind of stuff and, and, you know, really not respecting the integrity of our program by using a lot of vulgarity. And I didn't like the way it felt because it really felt like that I missed the boat and that I missed the opportunity to, to share my experience. Um, by, the, by really by the unmerited grace of a loving higher power, I've been clean for a little over 18 years. And um, thank you for, uh, you know, truly a life worth living. Humility seems to be kind of difficult, or kind of an added layer of difficulty with getting humble this morning was that I rented a motorcycle yesterday and the day before yesterday, and I really get full of myself when I'm on my motorcycle. Um, So I really prayed hard this morning.
for me, forgiveness in all my affairs, you know, kind of echoing what's already been shared, is that a lot of times during my using, and I believe that the reason that I used was because I felt victimized. And it was a perception that I'm sure a lot of times just simply wasn't true. Except in my head. And really that's, for me to put legs on an idea and and respond with using, that's the only place it had to be true, was in my head. And I could find lots of stuff to use at. The absence of my father, you know, not really thinking that I had the living and coping skills to grow up and um, being so terrified of pretty much everything. I mean, I, you know, once the squirrel kind of started running in the cage, I mean, the reasons just kept piling on and I could, I could use it, that stuff. And so I grew up and, and, um, and, and felt like that I was victimized by life and by the people in my life. So when I got, you know, when, when, when all of that kind of came to fruition or, you know, kind of came to be, when I got to the end of my using, pretty much like I've already heard shared, I, you know, I thought that dying was, you know, pretty much the only way out. And that's how I got introduced to recovery. I, I got sufficiently loaded one night and I tried to kill myself. I tried to cut my hands off with a razor blade. And when, you know, when you're, at the time I was in the army and they, they locked me up in a nut room and, um, and, uh, had somebody check on me every five or ten minutes. So, and then they introduced me to recovery. They took me downstairs and, and said, you need to hang out with these people and do what they do. And, and that's how I got introduced to recovery. And my recovery has really been a process, you know, I, I haven't really, in the first couple of years that I was clean and the first several white chips that I picked up because I, I wasn't one of those people that came in and, you know, just was absolutely desperate about staying clean. So I would accumulate a little bit of clean time and I would use again. And then I would have to go back and pick up another white chip. And I picked up, I don't know how many white chips, a bunch. And then somewhere in that process, I, I started to understand that if I didn't use, I didn't have to go through that shame and that guilt and that remorse about going back and picking up another white chip. But the desperation had returned. The desperation about just not wanting to live and you know not wanting to exist and, and not wanting to play in the sandbox of life anymore had returned. And, and it really got my attention. Because obviously I didn't succeed in ending my life. Um, so when I got clean, I, I really... The first couple of years I was here, I really didn't take it seriously. I, you know, I didn't immediately get a sponsor. I didn't immediately start applying spiritual principles or learning about spiritual principles. I, I played. I found all of those things other than chemicals that would make me feel good and, and kind of remove me from myself. So there was really no stability in my life. There was no emotional stability. There was no spiritual stability. It was pretty much the same kind of existence. It was unmanageable. It was desperate. It was not freeing. It wasn't any of those things. It was just not using. 
And what I've come to understand in the time that I've been here is that from time to time, we all suffer from untreated addiction. You know, and, and, and it shows up in our lives, just in different areas. Somewhere in the process of, of all of that, going out and riding motorcycles and raising cane and all the relationships, although I don't know if you could really call them relationships, um, and jobs and moves and geographicals and all of that stuff, fundamentally nothing was happening. I mean, I've come to really appreciate the, the value of working steps and having a relationship with a sponsor and having a relationship with God of my understanding in that it offers me some freedom in my life, that, that I don't suffer from the disease that caused me to, to find my way here or that gave me the gift of being here. And so when I depart from that, I feel it, and I think it, and, it, and it's, I don't like it. So, um, so I started working on a program, and I, and I got a sponsor, and, and I started writing steps, and started praying and, and, and really kind of started to, to learn about spiritual principles and learn about how to apply them in my life and made a lot of mistakes and I'm sure hurt a lot of people's feelings because I just didn't know yet, you know, how to treat people with kindness and respect and, and all of that. And I can safely say that I believe that everything that I've learned about living successfully, I've learned right here and I've learned from y'all. And, and I've learned, you know, either by you sharing it with me or by you... Um, sharing what you didn't do and learning from that too. When I think about forgiveness in all of my affairs, and I wrote down a bunch of things here, one of the things I think about is, is forgiveness for me usually involves somebody else or myself, which indicates a relationship. And what I've come to understand in my life is that the relationship that I have with my higher power, I don't know that without it that I could have as good a recovery as I have. I've also learned that that every relationship in my life takes work. It takes time. It takes effort. And so I, I make a regular habit of praying and meditating in my life. My sponsor has taught me a lot about how to live successfully, what to do and what not to do. And I'm getting to a, I'm getting to a, a point with all of this. Um, I'm really not wandering aimlessly, although it may appear that way. Or just trying to fill the time. I remember when I worked my eighth and ninth step the first time or the second time. I don't really recall which. I started to understand a little bit about what forgiveness is. I also started to understand that when I am unforgiving of people or circumstances or events in my life, they're not affected by it. I am. <laughs> it's kind of like carrying around an anchor or a bag of rocks or, you know, whatever. And it's work. It's work to, like, keep the bag from spilling open. It's worked to tote it around everywhere. It, it clouds my connection with my higher power. Clouds my connection with humanity in some cases. And so when I started to make my amends to, mostly to my family members, and mostly the financial amends, 
and most of my, or really all of my family members that I had taken advantage of through um, guilt or, you know, making them feel like they owed me something, they really didn't want the financial part of it. They wanted the spiritual and the emotional part of it more than anything else. And it surprised me. Because I'm of the mindset that if you take something from me, you owe it. And and I lived my life that way up until I got clean. And today, I, I, you know, I'm not so inclined to really live that way as much. I had an experience where you know, through, through staying clean and through uh, practicing steps and having a sponsor and all of the stuff that we do to, to you know, <laughs> stay clean and stay alive, I've accumulated a handful of sponsees. And, and um, I recently did some work on my house, or my wife and I did some work on our house, and I thought it would be a great idea to, you know, have some of the guys that, are, that I sponsor that are tradespeople to do some of the work. And... And I had to and I had to practice some forgiveness in all of my affairs. I had a driveway board and a parking pad. And this is so funny. My I got this truck. That's you know, it's the biggest truck I've ever owned. Four wheel drive, you know, it's like ten feet high. And um so the first thing I did is realize that the truck wouldn't fit under my carport. So instead of lowering the truck, I ripped the carport off. Well, then when I ripped the carport off, and my wife forgave me for doing that, um, I had to pour concrete to have some place to park it. So I ran right out and got my sponsee, the concrete guy, to form me a driveway and a parking pad. And the parking pad looked like the, the base for the leaning tower piece. I mean, it was noticeably higher on one side than it was on the other side. It sort of looked like it had experienced an earthquake or a shift in gravity on one end or something. And I had to go to him and I had to say, this isn't going to work because now my bed of my truck will rust because the water won't have anywhere to drain because it's parked like this. And what I learned through that process was, and, and, and it's kind of funny now, it wasn't funny then when we were writing checks, but... What I've learned in that process is that the money, after it was all said and done, was the least important part of it. The integrity of the relationship was more important. You know what I mean? And, and you know, the, and I believe that that's practicing forgiveness. It's like, look, you screwed up, fix it, and let's move on. And, and I believe that that's what... what what forgiveness is. It's forgiveness is like, you know, this is messed up and we need to make it right and, and move on. And, and so, um, so I practice some forgiveness. And when I say I practice, I, I really believe that, that all of the spiritual principles that I'm able to practice today, I, I mean, I, I kind of visualize the relationship that I have with my higher power as sort of being a portal in that I believe that there's a little piece of God in all of us, however we understand God. And I believe that the broader that opening, the more God shows up in our lives. You know what I mean? And, and so, and when I got clean, that portal was closed. 
There was no flow there. And as I've gotten clean and as I've learned the value in, in that portal being open and, and being able to apply that. So when I say when I practice forgiveness, I guess what I'm really trying to say is I allow it to flow through the portal of, of the understanding that I have with my heart power. To me, it's like trust with legs. I trust that on the other side of, of being forgiven and, and hopefully forgiving others that I'm going to be okay. Folks, that kind of stuff. The other thing that I've learned about practicing forgiveness, and, it's, and I'm really glad that they use the word practice, because I really don't believe that, and this is kind of where I get to in my head, there are things in my life that I feel like I should know how to handle or that I should know how to deal with, kind of like what you shared. And, and I hold myself accountable to that standard. I say I should know how to deal with this situation or this person or this whatever in my life, and I don't. And I have to ask for help. And I'm usually the last one to forgive myself for not knowing how to do something that I think I should know how to do. And it's amazing because somewhere in like early recovery, probably before recovery, when I was still picking up white chips or, or whatever it was, Somebody said to me, how, why would you, they asked it to me like this. They, they walked up, it was like, you know, white chip number 25 or whatever. And they walked up and they said, um, um, and I was sharing about, I should know how to do this. I mean, gee whiz, how many of these does it take to figure it out? You know, and I was just like, I mean, the ball bats in both hands, you know, hammering on myself about staying clean. And I mean, I, I don't think I left much of myself in that meeting. <laughs> When it was all said and done, somebody walked up to me and they said, if I took you into an operating room and handed you a scalpel, would you know how to do a frontal lobotomy? Huh? You know, I said, what does that have to do? You know, of course, now the squirrel's running. Well, what does that have to do with picking up white chips? And they said, why is it that you expect yourself to know how to do something you've never taken the time to learn how to do? Ding, you know, like, you know, those light bulb moments, those God spot shot things, you know. And, and so... I've learned that, that, for me, life is always about learning. It's always about growing. It's always about learning new ways to apply principles, you know, which to me is what recovery is. It's, it's treating a disease that never goes away, that is incurable, that is fatal, that is progressive. I believe really where I learned how to forgive myself was by learning how to forgive others. It's kind of that question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And it's like, if I can, I, I find it easier to forgive others than I do to forgive myself. But I'm learning that, I'm learning about forgiving myself. And my parking pad's level now. Well, there's two inches of fall, but it doesn't look like the base for the Leaning Tower piece. And I still sponsor that guy, and we still have a wholesome relationship. So that worked out pretty well. Another thing I've learned about forgiveness in all of my affairs is, is the idea of compassion. And I, although I don't vocalize them a lot, I can come to a lot of quick judgments about people. And Compassion has taught me to kind of open the spectrum of thinking in my mind and to think about 
other possibilities other than what my head is telling me. What I find is that when I'm judging somebody, I'm usually afraid of them. And I'm creating this wall so that I don't have to let them in. So that I don't have to, you know, take the time and the energy to have a relationship with them or an acquaintanceship with them. So for me, compassion, practicing compassion is also like practicing forgiveness. Because I'm trying to look at it through their eyes. Trying to understand where they've come from. And respect that. Whatever it is. I have a relationship with a young man that um, came into my life many years ago. I'm not real good with times and stuff. Dates and all that kind of stuff. Or names, for the matter. So if you you introduce and I don't remember your name... Forgive me, please, because I just I have no short term, and it's not that I don't care; it's just that I actually don't remember. Um, and I know I've hurt some feelings about that, so I hope I'm forgiven for that. But um, over the years, I've had this relationship with this young man, and um, for a time, I let him live with us, my wife and I. And he was clean, and he was going to meetings, and he was taking care of his recovery. And then he got into school, and, and his life got very busy with school and, and part-time work, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and his, he stopped paying as much attention to his recovery. And he took advantage of some of the kindnesses that we had extended to him. And... Then he started playing one of us against the other because he was afraid, because he didn't want to face the consequences of the choices that he had made. And he didn't stay clean to it. You know, I really believe, and, 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 I'll, and I'll share this just as a general observation, is that kind of until proven otherwise, I really believe that everyone here in recovery is here to recover and is here to improve the quality of their life. And I believe that about everybody until I guess enough evidence is given that I no longer believe that. I've observed in the time that I've been clean that it's so easy to walk into our midst, into our fellowship and learn our lingo and act as though you generally, you truly want to be loved and, and want people to have compassion. I've also learned that if you're not living that way, it shows up. And, um, you know, and, and I understand that, you know, that everybody has a place to be in their recovery, wherever that is, on any given day. Because I have that place to be in my recovery, wherever that is on any given day. And that's helped me a lot with compassion. Because I don't know. Until I get to know you and know where you are in your process, I don't, I don't know where that place is. And over the years, what I've tried to, to, to understand and try to practice in my life is that I don't want to keyhole you into a spot in my head that you can never get out of. 
In other words, I don't want to judge you and say, well, he's not about recovery or she's not about recovery and, and exclude you. I'd rather wait and see what happens and support you and your recovery. And to me, that's practicing forgiveness. Because if I don't forgive the person for falling short of my expectations, I can never offer that support. That wall is up and that door is closed. And that's what I had to do with this young man. I had to say, you know, this ain't working out. You need to find somewhere else to live. And, um, and it was hard because he, you know, I don't know about y'all, but when somebody would say to me, you got to go. The first, the first place I would go to in my head is, is, well, I'm the victim here. And you caused me to be the victim here. And whether it was true or not, because that was kind of my defense. And that's where he went. Well, this is your fault. Okay, whatever you say, but you still got to find somewhere else to live, you know. Um, today, um, it is so cool. Um, he's a stylist. He cuts hair for a living, colors hair for a living. And um, I have a relationship with him today. An active relationship, a loving relationship. He still cuts my hair. I, I, I hope he wasn't mad when he did this. <laughs> I think this is what I asked for. So for me, empathy also plays a role. To me, empathy is is trying to see things through your eyes and trying to appreciate the place that you're coming from. Somewhere in that whole mixture of stuff, empathy is, is realizing that when I say it, it can't be unsaid. And so I really need to listen to what I'm getting ready to say. I'm really, really, I think I'm pretty good at that with people that I don't know very well. It is typically with the people that I'm closest to that I practice that the least. Because I believe that you are the least likely to seek retribution. I'm like that with my wife. Not much. But enough to know that I need to continue to work on it. All of that kind of brings me to this place. As I shared earlier, the, the, everything that I've learned about living life and about being the person that I am today, I've, I've really learned right here. And I've learned from y'all. And I think some of it is y'all sharing your experience, but I think all of it is an expression of my higher power's love for me. There have been, in the 18 years that I've been clean, there have been a whole lot of firsts in my life. I have a career today, which is a first. I still hope I have a job when I get home. And I'll share that with you, too. I haven't thought about that until just this moment. And my credit card balance. But anyway... uh, What I believe is I believe that the more we grow and the more we learn, perhaps the bigger the task becomes. Perhaps the more challenging the responsibility becomes because we have more stuff to apply to it. Just 
by way of our experience. I think most of the time I'm a pretty good driver. I think most of the time I think I'm a great driver and that I will not make any mistakes. The reality is, is that I can make mistakes. Usually when I least expect it. I work for a telecommunications company back home. I'm a, I'm a technician. And my, my job involves a lot of driving. And my company takes a very serious approach to safe driving because they don't carry in insurance. They're self-insured. So when you run into somebody, it isn't Allstate that writes the checks. It's the company. So they place a very high priority on safe driving. I experienced my I experienced my third motor vehicle accident in a very short seven year career thus far. There's a potential, I don't think it's gonna happen, but there's a potential that when I get home I could lose my job. Because they don't have to go to a whole lot of people and ask permission if you're an unsafe employee and you're gonna continue to wreck their cars, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, where I'm, that's what I'm working on forgiveness right now, is forgiving myself for not seeing the post behind my van that broke my window. There's a part of me that wishes that I could still be devious, because I could have made a phone call, gotten the window replaced, and no one would have ever known the difference, except me. And I can't keep a secret. And I learned that from y'all, doggone it. <laughs> I have a really hard time lying. Darn y'all. And I am definitely not good at keeping a surprise. Damn it, man. So, when I backed into the pole and the glass went kabam and went everywhere in the parking lot and the inside of my truck, I had to call my boss. And he had to come out and take about a gazillion photographs of it. And then he had to get all bent out of shape and he had to tell the whole crew not to back up. And then I had to tell the whole crew why he was telling the whole crew not to back up, and it was because of me. So I asked him, do I need to start looking for another job? And he said, I don't know, but it's going to hurt. So then I called the union, and I said, do I need to start looking for another job? And they said, probably not, but you'll probably get a week off. And then I'm thinking about my credit card balance, because that money's got to come from somewhere. What I've, what I've heard myself sharing with my sponsor and with people that I trust and, you know, people, my, my network of people is that, you know, is that I'm human and I'm going to make mistakes and that I'm going to not pay attention when I need to pay attention. What I've also learned is that if I go home and they say, we want your keys and your ID badge, is that I will have no regrets. I will have a regret about causing that to happen but I won't have any regrets about the way I handled it. I will not have lied. I will not have deceived anyone. I will not have brought any, dark, any more darkness to that situation. I will have practiced integrity. It won't make it any easier, but it will be one less thing that I'll have to regret in my life.
I believe that I believe in order to practice that, I have to believe that on the other side of that experience, no matter what happens, that I'll be okay. You know. And to me, that's trust. Another one of the first that happened in my life is I learned how to have a relationship with another human being. And I've learned that right here. And I've had the opportunity to share that with people in my life. Up until the time I got clean, most of my relationships were not about unconditional love. They were either out of necessity for some place to stay, food to eat, or they were out of um, obsession. But they weren't really based in spiritual principles. I know none of y'all can identify with that. After I had been clean a couple of years or three years, I met a young lady. We became friends. There was no... There was no deviousness on my part, and I don't think on hers either. And I asked her out on a date, because that's another thing I had never done until I got here was go out on a date. I would go to, you know, the places that we went to pick somebody up, and then all of a sudden you're moving your stuff in, and a few weeks later you're moving your stuff back out again. And that was a relationship, you know. Somewhere in there, you you know, did what people that live together do. So I met a young lady and, and, and opened myself up to the possibility that I could be successful in a relationship. Because until that point in time, I couldn't. And it wasn't that I was incapable. It was that there was too much of me in the way. There was too much of my will and what I wanted. You know, the me, me, me stuff. Our first date was on the 14th of September, 1990. Six months later, we were living together. And on the 4th of September of 1991, we got married. And I have no regrets about that at all. I even asked her mom and dad for her hand because that was important to me. It was important to me that they would accept me as a son-in-law. It was scary as all get out. I felt like I proposed three times. So life went on. You go to work, you pay rent, you do what you do, you go to meetings, you stay involved in service, or at least that's what I did. And the responsibilities get bigger and the more there's more grass to cut, etc., etc., and everything's going along hunky dory. One night a few years ago, about three years ago or three and a half years ago, um, this person came to me and she said that she had used. At the time, she had about 12 years clean. And it was frightening on a number of different levels. I know this is going to sound a little strange, 
and it's probably going to be very easily misunderstood. But I believe so much that I believe so much in, in that my higher power has my best interest at heart, and that sometimes I don't know what that is. That if through some of the many ways that my higher power communicated with me, communicates with me, if he told me to go use, I would do that. If, if I believe that that's what he wanted me to do. So there was fear on a number of different levels. There was fear that I wouldn't be able to stay clean. There was a big fear that my relationship would end or would dramatically change. There was a fear that this person would not stay clean or get clean again. There were six hamsters running. I spent a lot of time on the phone with my sponsor because I don't know how y'all are, but I know when I'm in trouble, I tend to front. I tend to lie to myself and thus to other people. I tend to not be honest with myself because it continues to support the truth of whatever it is I'm thinking is true. And so I heard things like, I'm not going back to meetings. I heard things like, and they sucks. I was given over a period of time this picture that said, it's not for me anymore. And for me, this is who I am. This is where I fit. These are my roots. This is the hub of my wheel. What I've learned is that, and I love this sentence in the basic text, it says, everything we know is subject to revision, especially what we know about the truth. Because what's true today may be false tomorrow. What's real today may not be real next week. So I was faced with a couple of decisions that I talked. <laughs> I burned up a lot of phone minutes talking to my sponsor. What do I do? You know? Somewhere in the process of that whole series of relapses, I made the decision that I'm not leaving until I believe that my recovery, that, my, that me staying clean is truly threatened. So I didn't leave. I thought about it a lot, but I didn't do it. And to me, the single biggest gift of my recovery among the many relationships that I have is the relationship that I have with my wife. It's the gift that continues to give every day. Somewhere in my marriage vows, there was this thing that said, in sickness and in health, 
I got married in a courthouse. I'm surprised it was in there. But it said in sickness and in health. So if I really believe that we suffer from a disease and not a moral deficiency, then equally I believe that we're sick. So that kind of falls into the category of in sickness and in health. I know from experience that once the words come out of my mouth, I'm done with this. You can't take them back. You can't restore whatever piece of the person that you've just taken away from immediately, as immediately as you've taken it away. So I stayed. And I talked. Okay. And I talked about, um, I talked a lot with my sponsor. I talked a lot with my wife. I stayed vigilant. I stayed in my home group and I stayed open about the way that I was feeling and thinking. I didn't put legs on any of the thoughts and ideas that I had about running away or dramatically changing my marriage. I restored trust. And it was work. And again, when I'm saying I, I'm talking about that portal. I'm talking to you about the relationship that I have with my higher power. What I'll share with you is that my wife will have two years clean in February of next year. And on Sunday, we will celebrate our 14th wedding anniversary. And I have never been more in love with a human being as I am today. The gift that keeps on giving. Someone once said that without struggle, there's no victory. I really believe that we're all where we are in this journey. We're in it together. And that there's struggle involved. Mostly the struggle of getting enough of me out of the way to surrender and to apply spiritual principles. And the journey continues. I hope that I said something useful. I hope that I said something that offered hope. And I hope that if I've stirred something in your spirit that bothers you, that you do with it what you need to do with it and get some freedom behind it. I'm really grateful to have had this opportunity. I hope you guys have a great time here in Honolulu, Hawaii and at the convention. And if no one's told you today that they love you and that they believe in you, I do. Thanks. I want to um, thank Teresa and Jim for speaking and I'm going to ask and I'm going to ask Francis Jay from Virginia to come up and read We Do Recover. My name is Francis. I'm just great for recovering. 
addict from Virginia by way of D.C. <laughs> we do recover when at the end of the road we find that we can no longer function as human beings, either with or without drugs, we all face the same dilemma. What is there left to do? There seems to be this alternative, either go on as best we can to the bitter end, jails, institutions, or death, or find a new way to, to live. In years gone by, very few addicts ever had this last chance, I mean, excuse me, this last choice. Those who are addicted today are more fortunate for the first time in man's entire history, a simple way has been proving itself in the lives of many addicts. It is available to us all. This is a simple, spiritual, not religious program known as Narcotics Anonymous. All right. Um, we are closed in a usual manner with um, the circle around the room. Oh, okay.